Besser centers. And here's Pedersen. Scores! Everyone, welcome to episode 25 of the Apple Discussions podcast. You know who it is. I'm your host, Josh Ray, per usual. And it's been a while since we last sp- spoke because, um, as you may know, I got my wisdom teeth removed and I had to recover. And a lot has changed in the world over the last two weeks. There will be a new U.S. president just announced today. And the Canucks. They made some moves. A lot of things have happened in the sports world. Yeah, time really does fly by. But it feels like a while since I last did a podcast. And it just setting up just felt felt good. It felt normal again. It really did. And um, since I got four wisdom teeth removed, I couldn't record this for the last couple of weeks because I wasn't sure if I was able to talk right but it went fine it actually went really smoothly so they injected me with the Anastasia thing or whatever it's called they, I went to sleep it didn't feel long but when I woke up I um, was on drugs and I couldn't speak, or when I tried try to speak, it just sounded like blah, 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 blah. and I had I had an idea where it was, but I couldn't. I remember my vision was blurred, and I felt tired and all that. Luckily, on that day, I went to sleep. I got some good night's sleep, and over the last week or so, I had to take some pills. My mouth hurt quite a bit for the first few days. It felt tough to eat, and but I'm just glad that was over with, because now I can do this podcasting. It's what I love. I also wrote a few articles for the Canuck Way, one on players who need to bounce back, and a deep dive on Besser and why he's becoming more than just a goal scorer. And I'll have more articles for the Canuck Way coming up in the next week or so. Anyway. A lot has happened in the last two weeks in the Canucks world. And let's talk about it here. So, on the day I got my wisdom teeth pulled out, Jake Furtanen signed a two-year deal worth $5.1 million. That's $2.5 million per season. And, to be fair, that's a good deal. And he'll be an RFA when arbitration rights when the two-year deal expires. And he avoided arbitration. So... Uh, with Tyler Toffoli gone, it, it means that Jim Benning 
and company, they still have some faith in Jake Vertanen that he could hopefully be a consistent 20-goal, 40-point guy, maybe in the top six. And it looks like he will play in the top six in the, for the upcoming season. And that could be with Miller and Pedersen or Horvat and Peterson. He has looked good. Uh, Chris Faber wrote an article for Canucks Army about this with Miller and Pedersen last year. And I'd be down to doing that. But overall, that was uh, pretty much what I would have given him. Two-year deal. Two, another two-year show me. But 24 years old, could next season be his breakout season? And I know what you're saying, but uh, he's so inconsistent. Look, playoff Jake, he was invisible in the playoffs. Yes, I know. That was frustrating, but he's hopefully turning thing, going to turn things around. He's training with Tyler Myers in Kelowna, and hopefully... Uh, he puts it all together. Like, yeah, I mentioned this before. He has the skill. He has the shot. He has the body. Well, that just sounded weird, but he can be physical. But his hockey IQ is his kryptonite. Like, he makes poor decisions, offensively and defensively. And he goes on these droughts. And the contract shows that the Canucks have faith in him. Or Benning does, at least. And if he does manage to have a good season next year, then I'll, then good. But if he doesn't, then maybe you can look at trading this guy. I'm not sure. I mean, the local kid, Abbotsford, BC, dreamed of being a Canuck all his life. He, I expect him to be better next year. And last year, he could have scored 20 goals if it weren't for the pandemic. But, again, consistency and all that playoff Jake was pretty disappointing and he could break out you never know I just he probably won't be like that like what he lived up to like a first liner like a solid 30 goal guy like he was projected to be when the Cubs drafted him in 2014 sixth overall but if he if his peak is like a 20 goal second line, third line, like 40 point, 50 point guy, then I'm all for it. So, should be another interesting year for Jake Vertanen. Another transaction the Canucks made, Adam Gaudet. He signed a one-year deal worth $950,000. And, um, that's a bit less than I expected, but, again, a show-me deal. 59 games last year, 12 goals, 21 assists, 33 points. He he looked, he shown flashes of being a third-line center last year, but in the playoffs, he didn't look very good. He kind of looked lost. And uh, offensively, he wasn't really clicking. But if he uh, has the season like, in the regular season like he did last year, he could, that contract would be look pretty good, and he could be looking for a significant pay rise in his next one, I believe. Wait, hold on. Is he eligible for arbitration in, after the contract is up? Let me take a look. It's been a while since I've 
talked about hockey. No, I know he isn't. And honestly, 12 goals and 33 points, that's that that was pretty good last year and hopefully he can build on that. He has um he can be a good third line center. Uh, his defensive skills need work. His faceoffs, he can improve. And he's the type of guy who can play all around. He can score. He knows how to make plays. And he showed um, good chemistry in parts of the season with Roussel and Vertanen. But if he better not play like he played in the playoffs where he looked pretty lost and invisible. But if Gaudet, um has a good year next year and he plays well on the third line as a center, or maybe you could even move him as a winger in the top six. That's something I've heard. I'm not sure about that. Like I know he isn't ready to be a third line center in the NHL, but next year he could prove it. Then he should be good for another for pay rise the season before. And the Canucks actually signed somebody. Like, we brought in a new guy. Jace Howerluck. Took me a, a while to like pronounce that correctly. 24 years old. He was drafted in 2014 by the Panthers in the 6th round. And this is a guy who can bring... Some more depth in the in the bottom sixth. He um has it's yeah it's a one year deal. Let me take a look at his stats here. Yeah, he's like an agitator who can disturb people. He's capable of producing offense, like for the bottom six. Last year, three goals, seven assists in 26 games. And he can... He is okay, def pretty good defensively, but he, from what I've read, he has taken some bad penalties. So, I like, I like the deal for that. I like the player. The bottom six has been a... kind of a sore spot for the Canucks in the past years mainly because of those big contract guys but this guy for once Benny didn't sign a guy like worth like 6 million a year or 4 million a year and um this guy is like a pain in the neck to play against two way game it's he plays blows offensive numbers could be a bit better well he is a bottom six guy, but I from what I read, he can produce good offensive numbers. He's good on the four check, and um, back check isn't too bad either. So I like the deal. He can bring some help to the Canucks bottom six, and let's see what he can do. Hopefully, he can be pretty good, and I think he's a good fit for the Canucks. So the Canucks next year. Um, next uh, next year is going to be quite different for obvious reasons, and they might be. Pl oh, it's rumored, and it looks like it could happen. 
they're going to play in all Canadian division. And how do they stack up against the other Canadian teams? So let's take a look at Calgary. Uh, the Calgary Flames, or should I say the um, uh, Calgary Canucks. They signed Petrovic, Mark, Mark, former and former Canucks, Markstrom, Tanev, and Josh Lebo, and Louis Deming too. But he'll likely play in the minors. With T.J. Brody and T Travis Hamonic gone, I guess they could improve. They have improved. They got a better goalie. And they've added a defensive stalwart in Tanev. But are they? I bet I'm not sure if they could be better than the Canucks. I mean, um, well, I'm actually they could be, but slightly better. But it's too close to call. And Edmonton, they added Tyson Berry, Kyle Turris, Anton Forsberg. They lost Anthony Nassiu, Jim Benning's nephew Matt, Marcus Granlin, Mike Green, Manning, and Riley Shan. So, the Oilers, they should have looked to improve their goalie situation, but instead they brought back Mike Smith. Uh, Barry is a good pickup on a one-year deal. Kyle Turris, too, could provide some secondary scoring for McDavid and Dreisaitl. Um, it looks like the Oilers are a better team. It, again, depending on McDavid and Dreisaitl, they're pretty much carried by them. And if they get, actually get some help from secondary scoring and defense and but another weakness could be goaltending because Mike Smith isn't pretty good Montreal they got rid of Domi Kincaid and Weiss and there's another guy I'm forgetting uh, and they acquired Edmondson Toffoli Anderson and Allen I don't think the Habs are better than the Canucks but they got a good pick, solid uh, top six guy with Tyler Foley. Jake Allen is a pretty good backup for Price. I can't believe the deal they signed for Josh Anderson. It was like a seven-year deal or whatever it was. That was crazy. He's, like, he's, he's all right, but not worth that contract. And Edmondson is another overpayment too. And I heard he has his defensive issues. There's Ottawa. They've got a great future. They are weaponizing the cap. Uh, they drafted pretty well. And this season they added uh, Gabranson, Matt Murray, Austin Watson, Evgeny Dadanov. Yeah, it's pretty obvious that the Sens are still in that transitional stage. And they're not... The Canucks are obviously better than them. Uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs, they've uh, bolstered up with um, some defensemen with TJ Brody on the back end. Wayne Simmons and Joe Thornton, Jimmy VZ, um, filed solid bottom six. Cody CC's gone, Tyson Berry's gone, Kapanen's gone, Andreas Janssen's gone. So if you look at the analytics, the Leafs are a good team. Especially up front. Um, I do think the Leafs are the best, probably the best team in Canada. Though I could be wrong. But then again. 
Uh, Frederick Anderson, he's quite inconsistent. Matthews, Marner, Tavares, Nylander. Leafs are going to be relying on those guys to get it done. But they have improved with the bottom six depth. And they have um, tried to fix their defense. And, I mean, the Leafs are a fun team to watch, but they could... I think these guys are the best team in Canada. They've on paper, but you never know. Uh, the Jets, um, they've only added like what Nate Thompson. I know they traded for Paul Stastny and Derek Forbert. Uh, they re-signed Dylan DeMello, and uh, again they're going to be relying. They took a big step back. Last year, I guess losing Truba, Bufflin, Myers kind of hurt them. Hellebuck, they're going to rely on him because he was an absolute beast last year. And if he pulls up another year like that, I'll watch out. Patrick Line, uh, he took a step back. Maybe he can get back to form. Same with Shifley after his injury and Wheeler. But uh, again, I think the Canucks could be the better team here, though though Winnipeg has the better goalie. But honestly, where would the Canucks rank in an all-Canadian division? At most... Okay, there would be around four. Fourth place, yeah. So, I got Toronto up number one, Edmonton two, Calgary three, Vancouver fourth. Um, Winnipeg 5, Montreal 6, and Ottawa 7. Yeah, so honestly, the Canucks could finish anywhere f f in the top 4 f on the Canadian division. You never know with this team. I mean, Pedersen and Miller, Messer, they gotta take a step, another step forward. Same with Horvat. Holpe, and if Holpe gets back to his old self under Ian Clark, they could win the division. Same with Demko, if he has a, has a strong campaign. And Nate Smith, um, the Canucks are pretty much worse defensively. Nate Smith is a great pickup, and if he has like a JT Miller type impact on the defense, they could finish in the top three the Canadian division. But overall, yeah, the Canucks are a worse team than last year, in my opinion. But they're not, like, terribly, terribly. They've gotten, like, terribly bad, but they've gotten worse, in my opinion. Losing to Foley sucked. And I really liked him in the top six. Especially if you know, you know what they gave up. Madden and his second. And that hurt. Troy Stetcher, that one also hurt too, because he was, not just because he's a local kid from Richmond, but I thought he was pretty solid defensively. Josh Levo, losing him in the Flames. Uh, when he was healthy, he provide, he was a good, reliable bottom six winger. Yeah, but losing him to Calgary hurt. Uh, of course, Howerluck provides some stability in the and some depth on the bottom six. Uh, he, um, Jake Vertanen, can he 
finally break out? There's a bunch of questions that have to be asked here. If the Canucks um, want to finish like in the top three of the division, a lot of things have to go right. And if they want to make the playoffs, too. I'm not sure if they will, because I think they have gotten worse. But and it, the NHL is unpredictable. Hockey is unpredictable. I think that uh, the offseason, as I said in the last episode, I'm going to give Benning a C-, and I still stand by that. The Nate Schmidt trade prevents it from being a D or an F. So, um, yeah, speaking of Nate Schmidt, the defense. Uh, Broken Rafferty, uh, Ole Levy, Jack Rathbone, relying on pretty, on, on rookies defensively. I don't, not sure if that's the best move, but honestly, they should have looked to re-signing Stetcher, re-signing a cheap defenseman who could play the right side. But, it is what it is. The Canucks, I think they're worse than last year. But And we'll finish fourth in all-Canadian division. But hopefully, I'm wrong at once again, and they actually make the playoffs this year and finish high in the Canadian division. Now, let's talk about the Canucks' top prospect, Vasily Podkolzin. It's been uh, quite the whirlwind for him. He was sent down to the, I believe it was about the, the Russian equivalent of the KHL, the VHL. And now he is going to be playing for Team Russia, the World Juniors. And with SK St. Petersburg, he really hasn't been producing that much. Oh, today he got ice time. He had two assists and the shootout winner for Russia at the Karjala Cup. But there is no re- reason to be worried about him because he isn't scoring in the KHL. Be- it's because he's being mishandled. Like, they're playing him on the fourth line. They're not really giving him power play time or penalty kill time. Like, he... I know... I'm not saying that... That all blame the completely the ice time for his poor play. Well, actually, yes, I am in a way. Because we haven't really seen the best of him yet. He's a skilled winger. He plays a great 200-foot game. Great puck handling skills. He has a good shot, and he's and he can play aggressive, like an all situations type player. But they're not letting him like work his magic in Russia. And honestly, I think he'll be fine when he comes to the NHL. And plus, the World Juniors are coming up. He has a ton of offensive upside, and I believe he will light it up in the World Juniors. Hopefully, this one better be right. And with Russia, he's going to be playing on the first line. He's going to have way more ice time. The penalty kill and the power play. And I'll be watching uh, Paul Colson for that. Hope, and when he transitions to the NHL like next spring, I bl- yeah, next spring, he... Um, I think he'll be fine. And from what scouts have said, that he is NHL ready. But 
because of his de deployment in Russia, there was a reason why he fell to 10th overall in the 2019 draft, and the Canucks snagged him up. And it's uh, his usage um, in the KHL. It's it's um it's poor. It really is poor. And um, he's. I wish they gave him more this time, but the World Juniors are coming up. I can't wait to see his two hundred foot game. And he has potential to be a very solid top six winger in the NHL. And I love, um, he, he can make good plays and he has a good shot. And there are people saying, oh, he's projected to be a third liner with those numbers. No, he's not. If you actually watch him play, that is uh, top six minutes. Follow Chris Faber on Twitter because he, hey Faber, if you're listening to this, uh, mad respect. Just mad respect. For you to getting up so early to watch Vasily Podkolzin. You're doing God's work, man. And I can't wait to see him play in the NHL next year. Okay, let's talk about some NFL. And uh, it's been quite the ride for the Seattle Seahawks. They lost their first game on Sunday Night Football. That game was crazy. Yeah, that was the game that produced the Dade came back half meme where he was running him down after Ruster and interception. They lost in overtime. You... <laughs> Russ threw an interception over time. They missed at first from the field goal. I, I I hate that stadium in Arizona. I really do. Was it like State Farm Stadium now? Before it was called University of Phoenix Stadium? I really do hate that place. Not only because that was the stadium where the Seahawks lost the Super Bowl to and where, of course, Russ threw the ball away. They threw it at the goal line, but that's where the Legion of Boom fell apart. There was like numerous injuries there. That's where Earl Thomas played his last game. I think same with Cam Chancellor too. Richard Sherman, he got hurt badly one year there. I I really hate that stadium. That stadium is cursed for the Seahawks. And the Seahawks were destined to lose that game with the way they were playing. They're so passive. The defense couldn't even make a stop. Yeah, Jamal Adams is out. And that doesn't really help. But next week, the Seahawks played the depleted, injury-depleted 49ers. They lost Kittle and Garoppolo in that game. I think Kittle played last game. I'm not really sure. Correct me on that. And um, thankfully, they made it close again. Well, interesting again. But the Seahawks played one game where it didn't give me a heart attack. And DK Metcalf. Man is a beast. He really is. Same with Tyler Lockett, too. And Russell Wilson is the reason why his team is 6-1. And, and if he isn't MVP to you, then I don't know what to say. I really don't. They're going to be playing the Bills tomorrow. And the Buffalo Bills, believe it or not, are 5-2. and two. No, 6-2. and two. First in the AFC East. Yes, this is real life. If you're... In, like a casual foot NFL fan, yeah, the Buffalo Bills are six and two. And Josh Allen, usually pretty mediocre, but this year he's been good, and the offense has been good too. Um, 
Uh, Chris Carson will be out. Jamal Adams is returning. And they acquired uh, Carlos Dunlop from the Cincinnati Bengals. So there's a boost for the the defense. I might be forgetting some more stuff, but um, let Russ cook once again. Buffalo's not going to be easy. Josh Allen has come out of nowhere and decided to be good. And hopefully the defense can actually make a stop this time. Because, well, it's been frustrating to watch. Somehow, even though the defense is bad, the Seahawks are 6-1. and one. And because the defense has been pretty bad, I don't think they're a legit contender yet. Because you can't win a Super Bowl without that kind of defense. You really can't. Anyway, let's move on to the real football. Or, uh, soccer. Across the pond. Um, Chelsea. Life's been good. Life is really, really good. I watched them play Sheffield United today. And I'm wearing the jersey right now. I'm going to wear it all day. Not just because of Chelsea, but you know, you know what's going on in the States. They're blue too, just like London. They started off kind of shaky. Uh, once again, off a set piece, David McGoldrick heads it past Edward Mendy. He had six straight clean sheets leading up to that goal. And only hit, um, McGoldrick and Eric Lamella were the only players to beat Mendy so far because he has been solid. He's been making saves left and right. It feels so good. So good to have a goal you can actually stop a beach ball. Now today, um, they were so good on the counterattack, Chelsea. The 4-3-3. It started with the game against Krasnodar in the Champions League. And that the team was like doing so well on the counter. They were passing it like flawlessly. And they looked threatening with it. Could this be um, Frank Lampard's version of the 3-5-2, I believe, on, in the 16-17 season where, under Antonio Conte, where Chelsea won the league? You never know. Um, Hakim Ziyech. Today, he he was like the man of the match, undoubtedly. He, he was really good. Two assists today. Uh, one off Ben Ch- one for Ben Chilwell's goal, and another for Thiago Silva. Chelsea are getting headers too, header goals. He he is the Moroccan magician. Only like thirty three, like forty million pounds, like thirty three million dollars, or like well, that's a bargain. He's so skilled. Like he assisted on Silva's goal. The free kick was from like near the corner flag. And if you remember last year, when he was playing for Ajax in a game against Chelsea, he scored from that area. And from the exact same spot, he got an assist on Thiago Silva's goal. Thiago Silva's been pretty good the last few games too. It's looking like his old self. Like prime Thiago Silva. But this is the Thiago Silva in the twilight of his career. Imagine Chelsea signed him in his prime. Uh, yeah, but back to Ziyech. Like, he's been, he's like, on the touchline, he's, like, right before the, he manages to keep the ball in, his, his left foot is deadly. Like, that left foot is a missile. 
His crosses are solid. He's an excellent passer. And uh, he's just so skilled. I wonder why they call him the magician. Tammy Abraham, uh, Mason Mount, and Reese James. They fared some criticism from the Chelsea fans last year. And this year, they're showing why Frank has faith in them. Abraham scored today. Uh, Reese looked really good with his crosses, and he defended pretty well. And Mason Mount, um, he was good on the counter, and he was making excellent passes too. It's good to see. And um, this is why I've been backing Frank Lampard. Again, not because he's he is one of my, he's probably like my favorite Chelsea player of all time. Uh, many other Chelsea fans would probably agree as a club legend, but he knows what's best for this team. He got the players he wanted. He trusts the youth. He knows it's going to be a process. And the 4-3-3, he's, he experimented with it, and it's working so far. Now, um, not the, the entire team isn't fit. And if everyone was healthy with the 4-3-3, oh my god. Watch out. They won't be playing until the 21st against Newcastle because it's international break. Yeah. Kai Havertz tested positive for COVID-19 uh, before the game against Wren. He's recovering. Christian Pulisic is out with like a hamstring injury. He's sustained in warm-up against Burnley. From what Frank said, it's not serious, thankfully. Another thing, too. Pulisic is... That hamstring, that leg. It's a little concerning, because... Even when he was at Dortmund, he'd be getting hurt there. Like, he's a great player, but... Injuries, they're a bit concerning. Timo Werner scored today, too. And he should be the one taking the penalties now. Not Jorginho. No offense to Jorginho, he's good, too, but... Werner... He's starting to look like the striker we saw with Leipzig where he scored 29. I'm not saying he's going to score 29 this year, but he's cool as ice in front of the net. And on the attack, he looks good too as a winger. So Chelsea, they've been winning games. Um, feels like they haven't lost in a while. And hopefully this is the start of something special at this club. I really do. And as of this, as of now, the Premier League table, Southampton is on top. Yeah, you're 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 listening to this right. With 16 points, five wins, a draw, and two losses. Second is Liverpool, five wins, one draw, one loss, with 16 points. They're down because of goal differential. Southampton is four has four on goal differential. Liverpool has two. Chelsea, four wins, three draws. One loss. That was against Liverpool. 50 points. Third. So you're saying there's a chance. There is a chance. So hopefully the 4-3-3 works. And the players. Um, they continue with that fun counter attack. And that fun attacking. And hopefully the goals will continue to come. Because this team could and should be challenging for the Premier League title. Anyway, you can tell I'm pretty excited for today, for obvious reasons. Had a cup of coffee in the morning, I should have it more often. And I'm also pretty excited because our feature guest this week is none other 
than boy genius himself, Harmon Dial of The Athletic, coming up next. All right, everyone, joining us this week on the for the feature guest of the Avid Discussers podcast is none other than boy genius himself, Harmon Dial of The Athletic. Harmon, how are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me on. No problem. Been wanting to have you on for quite some time. And um, let's get off the bat, right off the bat here. What are the best... What is the best and worst move of the Canucks offseason? Yeah, I think uh, what sticks out as far as uh, a clear positive is the acquisition of Nate Schmidt. I think um, just when you analyze sometimes how difficult it is to acquire uh, a legitimate top four caliber defenseman who could play the right side, um, it's a really, really difficult process. Obviously, the Canucks have uh, attempted to do so for many, many years. We saw the Erica Branson trade, and, um, and ultimately the Canucks had to resort to paying Tyler Myers in free agency. Um, and, and he's more of a 4-5 guy. And, and I also look to the Toronto Maple Leafs and how long have they been desperately searching for their right side guy. So um, I think when you keep that uh, context in mind of how difficult it is to acquire a high-end defenseman who play the right side, uh, being able to acquire Nate Schmidt for just a third-round pick really stands out to me as a clear win. And um, look, there are there is going to be a little bit of hesitation when it comes to his contract. He's obviously got a little bit of term, but Schmidt's a phenomenal skater, and uh, because of that, I think it could help sort of um, extend his career as a top four guy. And um, when you analyze what he is right now. Uh, to me, it's evident that uh, for this Vegas Golden Knights team, he was a top pairing matchup defenseman. And, um, and, and to have that type of defenseman on a contender uh, sort of join Vancouver, I think it's uh, a massive addition. And um, some people, again, will quibble about, well, you, hate, well, you helped Vegas out of this cap bind. Um, but look, I, I think from my perspective, the Golden Knights would have found a taker one way or, for, one way or another for Nate Schmidt. And um, arguably the Canucks benefited from this more than anything else because um, if it wasn't for Schmidt, who else would they have realistically targeted uh, to upgrade their back end? And I think uh, when you analyze this top four now, uh, it's, it, it's much better than any top four we've seen in Vancouver for a long time. And, uh, and on the flip side, I think the the move that was perhaps most disappointing was actually uh, one that didn't happen, and that was um, Tyler Toffoli departing to Montreal. I think when Markstrom and Tanev left, it was tough but understandable because of the lucrative contracts they earned, but Toffoli leaving really was a gut punch. Uh, when you talk about the the contract that he signed, Four years of term, I think that's very reasonable. you got to keep in mind that he's 28 years old, so two years younger than Markstrom and Tanev. Uh, clean bill of health, so I think he's someone who's going to age pretty well. 
Uh, and then the four two five cap hit. I mean, that's what you uh, expect from a, a second caliber, second line caliber forward. And um, I think in Vancouver, at least, Toffoli would have been able to play on the top line and the top power play unit. So um, I, I think that's the the one that really stings, especially because there was an avenue to create that extra cap space. I mean, uh, if you just compare the two point five five that Vertanen signed for and Toffoli, the difference between them is only one point seven five million. So if you had traded Jake Vertanen uh, and uh, bought out Brandon Sutter, well, that's more. That's almost five million dollars more than enough extra cap space to bring Toffoli back. So um, I think that's uh, that's the one that really hurts Vancouver and. Um, I think it's why when you sort of balance out the players that left and the players that came in, um, you're looking at a roster that that, uh, that hasn't made a significant step um, in improving uh, compared to the one that left the bubble. And so right now the onus, the impetus is going to be on the second wave of young prospects, guys like Adam Gaudet, Jake Vertan, Ole Ulevi, Zach McEwen, these players are going to have to take the next step and continue to fuel Vancouver's growth forward um, as they try and uh, ascend as future uh, Western Conference, uh, as a future Western Conference powerhouse. And the Canucks lost Josh Levo to the Calgary Flames. How much does it hurt to see a guy like Levo go and the Canucks lose another free agent to the Calgary Flames? Yeah, I think especially when you compound it with the, the loss of Stefoli, um, it is tough. And look, we understand that Levo carries significant injury risk uh, with that uh, season-ending uh, knee injury that he had. But with Levo, the thing to keep in mind is for the rate that he signed for, he signed under $1 million. You make that bet 10 times out of 10 because, again, uh, I've talked about this before, any contract that you sign below, I believe it's 1.075 million. You can bury it in the minors without it affecting uh, your cap situation. Now there are, of course, real cash implications for owners. Uh, but again, from from a real cap perspective, it's not going to hurt you signing any player for around a million dollars. And so, really, signing Levo in that circumstance for the Calgary Flames, there's virtually no risk if it doesn't work out. Right. And so you've mitigated your downside risk. And the upside is that you've now got a potential middle six contributor, someone who, um, look, he's not the most sexy option, right? Like he, he doesn't excite fans the way that a Jake Furtanen might, but he's arguably more valuable when he's at 100%. Uh, that's at least a version that uh, the Canucks got this past season where um, he's got a, a tremendous two way profile, someone who could really help. Uh, you watch him play, and he wins every puck battle along the boards. Uh, he's a nuisance on the forecheck, good defensively. And so because of that, his possession numbers are excellent. He helps drive play forward. Um, and that makes him uh, a fit to play in a matchup role, right? Uh, when you look at who's going to play next to Bo Horvat next season, you've got a big question mark. Um, because guys, someone like Jake Vertanen, you're not going to be able to, um, in all likelihood, trust him going up against the other teams as elite players in that sort of defensive matchup role where that would have been a perfect fit for Josh Levo. And, uh, and so in addition to that too, yes, his point totals don't stick out because, um, because he isn't much of a power play scorer, but at five on five, at least uh, he scored at a credible middle six pace. And so to me, um, I think he, he's just a, a perfect example of someone who can, 
be a surplus contributor on lines two or three. Um, and, uh, and, and I think it is a, a bit of a loss for the, for the Canucks. And uh, it really, it just comes down to the price point that it was inked at. It was uh, no risk for the Calgary Flames there. And the Canucks did sign Jace Howerluck, and you wrote about him being an intriguing fit. What type of role do you expect him to see? Uh, do, you, do you expect him to play with the Canucks? Yeah, he's, uh, he's, he fits Vancouver's identity is, is first of all what I'd note. Um, he's a nuisance, absolute nuisance, a, a pain in the neck to play against. Um, someone who never takes a shift off, always has his feet moving. Uh, he's just someone who his, he, he's got such a high motor. And so because of that, he kind of fits the bottom six um, role that, that, again, the identity Vancouver's trying to, uh, trying to build and cultivate where they want to play this aggressive up-tempo style where they're hounding players on the forecheck, um, turning pucks over, being hard to play against. And I think Howerluck fits that bill. Uh, he's responsible and good defensively. Um, and he may yet still have a little bit of untapped offensive upside. So because of that, I think, um, I think he's a quality bottom six piece. I, I, I currently profile him as a, uh, as a fourth line player. Um, and I do think he has some modest upside. Again, I think if you could add half a step of explosiveness to his stride, that it would really help him um, take advantage more more take advantage of his offensive tools because when you watch Howerlick play as it stands, and, and I uh, analyzed a bunch of his tape, what you see is he has a good shot. Uh, he has good playmaking vision. Um, he can make plays with the puck. The problem is he just never seems to have it, whether it's in transition. And um, he doesn't have that separation gear. And that's not at all to say that he's a, a poor skater. He is an average to decent one. Um, it's just that extra explosiveness would enable him to take his offensive game to the next level. And um, I think that's where you stand with Howell, like someone who um, is going to help in the bottom six. Um, he may be a, a 13th forward to start if he, um, just because there's a ton of roster competition and we'll see just kind of how that, uh, how that uh, eventually stacks up. Uh, but uh, I view him as someone. I think the coaching staff will will really will really like him, and uh, for the price point that they signed him at, uh, I'm a fan of the addition. And Jake Vertan and Adam Gaudet they signed new deals over the last few weeks. Do you think they're fair deals? And how is it likely for both or one of them to have breakout seasons? I think with Adam Gaudet, let's start with him. Um, the cap, uh, the cap that uh, the cap hit that he clocked in at, obviously is is really reasonable. I think um, Vancouver was able to leverage the fact that he's a ten dot dot two CRFA, which means that no team uh, can sign him to an offer sheet. So essentially, when, uh, when when an RFA can't be signed to an offer sheet and he doesn't have arbitration rights like Vertanen did. Um, then he's got essentially no rights uh, to do anything. And because of that, Vancouver was able to squeeze him on, uh, on the salary. But um, I do think it was a little bit of a missed opportunity just as far as uh, a player like Godet, if you, can, if you think that he can continue taking steps in his trajectory and growth as a player, um, then I think this would have been an opportunity to sign him for, say, two years instead of one and get him locked in at a contract where if he takes a step next season and emerges as your long-term fixture as a 3C, um, well, then you've got an opportunity to really gain some efficiency 
uh, for the 2021-2022 campaign versus now if he takes that next step um, this coming season, he's going to be an RFA and he's going to get a little bit of a raise. So uh, that, that's something where, where that's maybe a, a, a point of contention. But beyond that, I mean, it's fair value on a one-year deal. Um, and with Gaudet, as far as a, a breakout season or, or not, um, I can't really say. I don't think anyone can because as it stands right now, to me anyway, it's evident that he's not quite up to par as far as uh, championship caliber three Cs. I think we saw that in the postseason where um, he just wasn't ready to go um, in terms of being ready physically. Uh, his two-way game defensively, he uh, he just wasn't making plays at a quick enough pace and kind of seemed a little bit like a deer in the headlights. But again, first playoff experience, you could kind of expect that. I think the key to him... Um, if you if you expect that he can grow into that 3C role, which I still think is possible, um, it's that you need to see continued growth in his two-way game. Things like defensive zone positioning, battles along the wall, being able to help out below uh, the hash marks, um, and just that entire 200-foot game. And um, if you're looking to be optimistic, um, then uh, I, I think it'd be worth pointing out that despite his age, uh, I, I think you do see that Godet. Um, just as far as his frame is a little bit, uh, he, he he's he's been a late bloomer, just physically developing, and so perhaps he can use this extended time off to pack on a little, a little bit more lean muscle, and that can um, assist his development in that capacity. Um, we'll see if if he doesn't take that step, though. Then I think you're going to have to come to grips um, with uh, with the idea that maybe he isn't your long term three C answer, and. Um, that would mean that you have to look at uh, and sort of figure out where exactly does he fit in your bottom six otherwise, because I still think that he can help uh, the Vancouver Canucks. It's just a matter of, can he do it down the middle in a prominent role? Uh, And then as it pertains to Jake Vertanen, I think when you remember his potential arbitration case uh, after the year he had breaking out with 18 goals uh, he was in line for uh, a potential raise to something in the $3 million range. And uh, so for Vancouver to lock him in at uh, 2.55, um, even if it was on a two-year deal, I think uh, that's a, a fairly reasonable valuation. I think uh, for Vancouver, that's a tidy piece of business in a vacuum, though. And I think that's where uh, there's an important distinction to be made is – Yes, I think at 2.55 or 10 even has an opportunity to exceed uh, an outperformance contract. But I think when you think about this uh, offseason, this was an unprecedented buyer's market. And in that sort of environment, Vancouver, the, I, I just think the opportunity cost looms large in terms of how else that cap space could have been used. I mentioned off the top uh, of this podcast that um, that 2.55 could have been used in, in part to pay to Foley, right? And again, the difference between them was only 1.7 million. So um, if you had traded for Tannen um, and found another way to open up cap space, whether that would have been through uh, another trade, uh, a buyout of Brandon Sutter, um, if that uh, cap space would have been decisive in bringing to Foley back, um, then I do think, um, then I do think there is a little bit of lost value there. So, um, that's kind of how I view the two signings. Um, I, again, they're, they're very reasonable. 
um, in isolation. I'm a little bit more bullish on the Godat one just because um, I feel that uh, in his particular circumstance, he feels a critical need up the middle. Um, and right now for Vancouver, um, they're, they're obviously placing a huge bet on Vertanen because they don't otherwise have right wing depth. And um, uh, my perspective on it anyway is um, if that cap space on Vertanen could have been used to bring to fully back, then that's probably the direction that uh, I would have preferred. Uh, but uh, at two two five five, um, I'm not going to complain uh, about the signing. Fair enough. Um, moving back to Nate Schmidt, um, who do you think should be his defensive partner on opening night? I think it should be Alex Edler, and the reason I say that is because. Um, my belief anyway is when you're constructing a back end, you want to spread the wealth. Um, you want to uh, just think about it this way. If the Canucks deploy Hughes and Schmidt on different pairings, then for 45 minutes a night, they're going to have an elite puck mover. Uh, they're going to have a, a, a true talent top pairing defenseman on the ice. And I prefer going down that route because um, look at a team like uh, Tampa Bay, and and when you when you look at that blue line, yes, they could have stacked a Victor Hedman pair, but the way they approached it is they wanted to spread out their talent. So they always had a stud on the ice. So Hedman played on a separate pair, Sergachev played on a separate pair, um, and they kind of shuffled uh, McDonough and, and Shattenkirk as they saw fit, and um, they kind of more or less used a placeholder next to Hedman, whether it was Jan Ruda, whether um, it was some of their other depth options. Even Zach Bogosian saw some reps with Hedman in the playoffs. So just as it pertains from that perspective, look, I think if you have Hughes next to Myers, uh, my belief anyway is of, of course you don't want, you, you don't really want Myers playing matchup minutes. Um, and, and so the way you can kind of build that out is um, Edler Schmidt can be your matchup pair. Uh, playing against top competition. And, and I like that combination because when you look at how Schmidt had most of his success in Vegas, it was next to Braden McNabb, uh, a slower, more defensively oriented uh, defender. And I think Edler sort of fits a similar prototype as far as Edler isn't really um, as solid as he was in transition um, earlier in his career, but he's still really proficient in breaking plays up in his own end, recovering loose pucks and, um, he can help out on the offensive end as well. And so next to Nate Schmidt, um, he can be that defensively sturdy presence in Schmidt for Edler. I mean, Schmidt would be the best partner Edler has had in years. And I think that's something that could go a long way in prolonging Edler's timeline um, in terms of being able to squeeze out an extra year of top, of top four value out of him because Schmidt is just a transition dynamo. And that really would... Um, feel a, a major need, one of the deficiencies that uh, that Edler has run into with the slowing foot speed. So I really think that combination would work well. And again, just spread, being able to spread the talent um, that way. I, I still think Hughes and Myers being able to play against secondary competition would be able to feast offensively. Um, so I like that combination. And, that w- and then what you can do after, because I know people are just frothing at the bit, thinking about how well, uh, how scintillating a, a Hughes Schmidt pair would look when the Canucks go down, you can bet that that combination will be on the ice. So um, that's how I'd approach deploying the uh, D pairs uh, as far as the top four is concerned. Uh, let's talk about the bottom pair here for a bit. Cause Ole Levy, Jack Rathbone and 
Brogan Rafferty, they're going to be vying for spots. And what should the Canucks do with the bottom pair? With the bottom pair right now, uh, I think you just really got to wait to see which prospect steps up to the occasion at training camp and um, shows himself to be most ready because I think it's tough to make that determination right now. Um, if you look at some of the Utica prospects um, and sort of profile uh, Rathbone, or sorry, not Rathbone, uh, Rafferty, uh, Chatfield, and Ulevi, you can make a case for each of them, right? Uh, with Rafferty, for instance, he was the best defenseman for the Comets in the regular season. Uh, phenomenal skater, 25 years old. He's got offensive inclinations. He can move the puck. And he, and he obviously was an all-star. Uh, but then on the other hand, uh, he does have defensive warts. And when you examine the construction of Vancouver's top four and how many offensive-minded defensemen you already have, well, perhaps that's, uh, that's a factor that works against Rafferty. Um, and, and, and that maybe gives an advantage to Jalen Chatfield, who uh, also moves relatively well, is mobile, is, is more physical, more defensively sturdy. Doesn't, his puck skills aren't even in the same, uh, aren't even in the same galaxy as, uh, as Rafferty's, but he's going to be more sturdy and reliable as a two-way piece. So just from a stylistic perspective, that could give him an inside track. Um, and then Ole Levy, we saw that uh, he had a little bit of an up-and-down tenure in Utica uh, coming back from uh, his knee injury. Uh, but uh, in training camp, he showed really well, and uh, he impressed me for sure. Uh, he, looked, uh, he looked decent in the one um, NHL game that he suited up in. So really, you, you've just kind of got to wait and see which – uh, one of those three, and, and, and Rathbone's got an outside shot as well coming out of Harvard. So uh, all four of those guys, you're going to wait to see who is ready to knock the door down. And uh, beyond that, I think as, as far as who fills the, the remaining spot out, it's got to be a veteran in, in my mind. I can't see Travis Green going with two rookies um, on the bottom pair. And, and if that's the case, then I think uh, amongst internal options, Jordy Ben certainly uh, would be the go-to option, which uh, I think Vancouver internally would like an upgrade. And I think this is where the loss of Troy Stetcher really stings is we saw Ben play this past year and he just wasn't a fit, right? Like he had a lot of success in Montreal, looked like a decent signing and um, just things didn't work out for him. And uh, you'd prefer to have someone else in your top six, but uh, that's, the, that's the reality of the Canucks face is they may, they may not have any other option. And um, I think at least the versatility that, that Ben has in being able to play both sides, that's going to work uh, well uh, as far as you don't have to worry about, uh, do we want a lefty or, or a right-handed defenseman making it uh, out of camp to accommodate Ben? He can play either side. So um, that's kind of how I see it uh, unfolding, barring a move, because I still think uh, there's an opportunity for the Canucks to acquire another depth defenseman. Um, maybe we'll even see a, a wafer pickup. But uh, as we projected right now, I, I see Ben and then uh, one of the prospects. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Ulevi had a slight edge uh, in that race. And you also wrote about Louis Erickson. And what should the Canucks do with him? Is it a good idea to demote him to the AHL? Yeah, I think that's been the question a lot of fans have been wondering. And uh, Look, uh, let me preface this discussion by saying I don't think the Canucks are going to demote him, and there are a couple of reasons for that. 
Um, one is just the financial implications. I, I wrote about it in my piece, but uh, the way revenue sharing works in the NHL is very different in the AHL and that affects ownership in, in Ericsson's earnings. So what happens is in the NHL, uh, for every dollar that the league makes, there's a 50-50 split. That's what the NHL CBA mandates. So 50 cents of that would go to the players, 50 cents of that would go to owners. Now to maintain that equal split of the pie, uh, what happens is players are subject to escrow. And escrow is essentially a portion of every player's paycheck uh, that gets withheld and, and sort of returned to the owners to, uh, to to compensate for that even split. And so what happens is, um, you know, in a given year, it might be 10, 10%. So a, a player that makes, that's listed as making, say, $5 million, well, he's not actually making $5 million. He's making $4.5 million because he's having 10% uh, taken away. Now for next season, revenue, projects, revenue projections are obviously really bearish for the league. And so as a result to compensate and ensure that uh, the integrity of that 50-50 split is maintained, uh, what you're going to see is escrow climb to 20%. And when you combine it with the fact that owners can defer additional salary, each paycheck that an NHL player earns next season is going to be 28% smaller. So they're going to earn 72 cents on the dollar. The problem is if you're in the AHL, none of that applies right now as the current rules uh rules are are, are sort of instated so if you demote erickson and this applies to signing bonuses as well so it's going to be uh applied to the full four million if erickson is demoted to the ahl and he doesn't play in the nhl the canucks have to go out and pay him back the escrow portion they have to essentially spend more money um, and at a time when every owner around the league is feeling a squeeze, I'm not sure that the Canucks are incentivized to send him down to Utica, especially when you have to take into account also, if, if you send Erickson to the AHL, you're going to have to replace his roster spot. If you bring up someone like Cole Lind, um, well, then all of a sudden he's on a two-way contract. Again, you're going to be paying him $925,000 if he plays in the NHL, only 70K if he's, in, if he's in the AHL. So now what happens from the owner's perspective is, number one, you're paying extra uh, in escrow. You're, you're not going to be getting the escrow advantage of having Erickson in the NHL, and you're paying um, uh, additional, uh, additional money to have one of your AHL prospects come up. Uh, so from that perspective, financially, um, the Canucks are incentivized to keep him in the NHL. And then even beyond that, from a hockey perspective, Vancouver's right-wing depth is just decimated to a point where um, I think the club would see him as a, as a realistic option. And I wouldn't even be surprised if you saw time in the top six, because if Vertanen doesn't work on the top line, I don't see him as a fit on the second line. I don't think he's going to get that opportunity just because, again, that second line is going to be in a defensive shutdown role. He's, if he's not in your top six, well, you bump Brock Besser back up to the top line. I wouldn't be surprised if it's uh, Erickson and Hauerluck duking it out for that role next to Horvat. So um, all things considered, we can have the argument of what should the Canucks, what, what should they do or, or what could they do? I think the most likely outcome of what they're actually going to do is that he sticks around in Vancouver. Interesting, interesting. And let's get into some listener questions now. Marcus Mayer asks you, one Canuck who will exceed expectations this season and one that will disappoint? Uh, 
Yeah, so I thought about this question a little bit uh, before. From my perspective, the way the, the market in Vancouver is, I think it's kind of hard sometimes to predict who's going to uh, sort of exceed expectations just because just because everyone's under the microscope, right? And so when you think about the unsung hero this past year, uh, and you had JT Miller, uh, I, I think that personifies the market because let's be honest, JT Miller was not unsung. His praises were, were um, sung the entire season. And I think that's more or less just a reflection of the fact that if, if you do good work, you're going to get recognized in this market. And um, so because of that, I don't see many sleepers. Like I don't see someone um, like JT Miller sort of having a new opportunity and in, in, in breaking out out of nowhere. Um, I think Zach McEwen does have an opportunity to sort of stake a full-time claim as an NHL player. I like his trajectory. I think um, towards the tail end of the season, he showed that he was rounding at his two-way game, maybe even had some offensive upside. So if I was pressed into it, uh, I would probably lean, lean into McEwen. And um, if not him, then um, I, I think I wouldn't even be surprised if Nate Schmidt exceeds expectations. Not so much from perspective of he's way better than we thought, but just Vancouver hasn't seen a lot of high-end defensemen over the last five years. Um, aside from Quinn Hughes, um, we've been stuck uh, with a really, really low bar on the blue line. And... Um, the way Schmidt skates, how he can join in the rush, how he controls play, all the minutes he eats. He's a high, high end defenseman, a legit two, three. And so I think early in the season, what you're going to see is a lot of fans who maybe haven't seen, uh, haven't seen uh, highly regarded defensemen, gold caliber players uh, in a while, and and they're going to be shocked, and and they're going to look at this player and say, "Wow, he's what an upgrade for the top four. So, um, I think Schmidt is in a position to leave a really positive impression on Vancouver's fan base. Um, and as far as someone who can maybe exceed expectations, I lean towards McEwen. Um, and then, did you also ask about someone who might disappoint? Yes. Okay, so I think there are. Uh, perhaps a, a couple of um, candidates along those lines. I think number one is Brogan Rafferty. Um, I'm a believer. I still think he can carve out a role as an NHL player, but I think people just kind of get carried away with the point totals, right? Like they see this near point per game defenseman in the HL and think he's going to replace Troy Stetch's full value. And uh, the fact of the matter is there are two, two considerations to keep in mind. The obvious is he's 25 years old. So um at the same stage in his career, a player like Stetcher had already had two years of experience in the NHL playing in the top four. So um, the bar is when you're 25 years old, you're inevitably going to have a lot of, you're inevitably going to eat up and, and, and sort of dominate the AHL. Um, the other factor to take into account is his defensive game. I, I, I just for, again, it comes down to the construction of the top four. When you look at um, when you look at how it's built, right? Out of Edler, Schmidt, Hughes, and Myers, you obviously have four really good offensive defensemen. 
but I don't think that uh, with the exception of Edler, none of them are especially proficient in their own end, right? Like Schmidt to me is neutral in his own end. He can play tough minutes, but he's not going to be a, a Tanev type uh, as far as his ability to shut down um, the league's best forwards. Um, Hughes is still a work in progress in his own zone, despite being, uh, in my mind, a top 10 defenseman in the NHL overall. Um, and Tyler Myers, again, he can move the puck. He can help out in the offensive zone, but, um, he's a poor neutral zone defender and, and he gets lost in his own end. So, um, because of that, you don't have many defenders that, uh, are proficient to without the puck in their own end. And, and keep in mind, this is already a blue line to struggle to defend. And so because of that, I think Rafferty's skating is away from the puck, right? Because he's a good skater with it, away from the puck as far as his pivots and how he defended, defends the rush. I think that's going to be a challenge for him. I think um, in his own end, he's still learning to be a, little, a more assertive defender. So again, I, I still think he can be an NHL caliber defenseman. I just don't know if that's going to happen in Vancouver. And uh, relative to the hype, I'm not sure if he's going to justify it. And the other player that uh, sticks out to me is um, is Jake Vertanen. Now, would it surprise me if he hits 20 goals? I think it's it's possible in the right uh, in, in the right scenario. But uh, to me. When I look back at his campaign last season, there were signs in his underlying profile that suggested he had some shooting luck, particularly on the man advantage. So I think he could be prone to some regression. Um, and look, if his, if his two-way game is enough to snuff, um, if he doesn't round out the details in his game, he's not going to last in the top six very long. And um, out of necessity, I think the odds of him succeeding are actually a lot higher than they normally would be. Like if Toffoli was back, back, back um, in the equation and, and, and you had the top six set, I would have been par- fairly certain in saying that uh, Vertanen um, has a pretty decent chance of underperforming. Now I, I leave it at a, at a 50-50, but uh, again, it wouldn't surprise me at all if he disappointed the market. Okay, uh, Joshua Griffith asks... Are the Leafs legit? And I should also add, how did the Canucks stack up in an all-Canadian division? Question to me, I, I think yes, the Leafs are legit. I know people like to poke fun at them, and and yes, they've one hundred percent underperformed in the playoffs. But I look at this roster, and um, it's just so deep, especially when you compare it to one uh, like Vancouver's. Um, they've solved, I think, um, the back end, and the, the quintessential example I give is. Um, Travis Dermott uh, is buried in, in Toronto's uh, blue line, and, and he's probably uh, going to be the number six defenseman, maybe even on the outside looking in on a roster spot. And, and in Vancouver, to me, there's no question that he'd be skating in the top four. So um, I, I think the Leafs have, with the TJ Brody edition, um, gone uh, a long ways in um, in shoring up their blue line. Like to me, now they have three top four caliber defensemen in Morgan Riley, Jake Muzzin, and TJ Brody. Um, we know what they can do up front offensively with that Matthews Tavares one two punch, and they've got a ton of skill on their wings. Um, I, I think between Anderson and Jack Campbell, they're going to get fairly decent goaltending. Um, and again, just the number of, of depth pieces that, that they've got now, right? Like they've become a harder team to play against, right? Like that was the criticism against them. Um, they brought in Wayne Simmons and 
I think uh, a full season of uh, Ilya Mikheyev, he's a bigger body that can uh, help as a, as a puck retriever. Um, and uh, adding Zach Bogosian on the blue line. Um, to me, this is, uh, this is a team, especially so many times, it just takes adversity. It takes failure to help a team get, get over the hump. And um, so it depends on what your definition of legit is. I think, um, I think to me, they're, they're, they're a dark horse um, heading into next season. I think, I think this is the year where they can finally break through and, and win a round or two. Um, and maybe even more just because, I mean, I mean, just look at uh, a team like Washington and Tampa Bay, uh, look at what happened before they climbed to winning their Stanley cup, right? Uh, with Washington, the, the joke was, Hey, they can't get past the second round with Tampa Bay the year before they get swept by Columbus after, um, an unprecedented level of success in the regular season, a truly dominant regular season performance, um, and similarly now, uh, the Leafs are sort of this laughing stock, uh, incredibly talented roster. Now I'm not sitting, sitting here saying they're, uh, they're a top uh, tier cup contender because uh, I think very clearly there's a one and two in Tampa and Colorado that uh, the Leafs aren't at that level. Uh, but I, I think to me they're the best team in Canada. And, and that may come off as controversial, especially given the more recent success that Vancouver had. Uh, but I think if you were to lay a bet with me, who's going to win more playoff games, which franchise over the next three years, the Canucks or the Leafs, um, I tend to lean towards uh, Toronto. Um, and um, from that perspective, uh, I think they're going to be successful. I think Vancouver, um, when it comes to an all-Canadian division, there's kind of a mushy middle, right? Like To me, there's a, a clear number one in Toronto. And after that, uh, you have a, a bunch of decent teams. Like you don't have full fledged contenders. Um, you have Calgary, you have uh, Edmonton, Montreal. Uh, all these teams are going to hang around in an all Canadian division as well. Vancouver, they're, they're going to be on the cusp of um, being sort of playoff teams. Um, the only gimme there to me is Ottawa. Um, and so I, I think every team in that division is going to be competitive um vancouver's odds i don't think changed too much um just because the pacific division was already quite weak um so the way i see it there's a whole lot that changes maybe it gets slightly more difficult because in the pacific um arizona uh, anaheim and san jose would have been bottom feeders uh, would have been uh, in, in a tier below uh that um that you just you have more teams that'll hang around um, in an all Canadian division, but uh, I still think the Canucks uh, have a legit shot to make the playoffs. Hi party asks story behind how you started looking at analytics for hockey. Yeah, I get this one a lot. Uh, it's uh, again, a great question to me. Um, what happened was growing up, I was obviously a, a diehard hockey fan. And when I'd watch the game, I'd notice certain things, certain patterns, patterns that have opinions on players. Um, and I, by that point I had already started a Twitter. This is when I was uh, maybe 14 or 15. And um, the, the one example that always comes to mind uh, that I bring up is, is Chris Tanev. Like I'd watch this player and, um, and say he's so defensively sound. He closes gaps so well in the neutral zone. Uh, really good stick. Uh, breaks up a ton of passes. 
he's just this elite defender at eliminating time and space and using a stick. And he's always so sound positionally. Um, and my belief at the time was this is one of the NHL's best shutdown defensemen. And at the time, however, this was before Tana's reputation had sort of blossomed. People kind of viewed him as eh, he's this decent, uh, competent defenseman um, in Vancouver, much less the NHL. So my thought at the time was he is criminally underrated. And the problem that I ran into was I would think to myself, okay, like how do I convince other people? How do I persuade them um, of my sort of take here? And couldn't do it with the point totals. All I really had was, hey, he plays minutes, right? Um, and you kind of had to watch the games to, and, and key, in on, key in on him to prove your point. You didn't have any objective way to back up your assertion. And, and so that's kind of where I ran into, okay, how do I prove Tanev's uh, def- defensive proficiency um, and his value in that capacity? And so that's where I dove into, hey, analytics can help me do exactly that. And um, when you look at Tanev's defensive profile, he's an excellent shot suppressor. He's an excellent scoring chance suppressor. He helps drive possession. And so uh, all of a sudden this makes intuitive sense because it backs up uh, objectively what I'm seeing with my own eyes. Uh, and so that's kind of how uh, I got uh, started into analytics. I spent a lot of time learning and just reading uh, other people's work um, and just kind of continued refining the synergy between the eye test uh, and the analytics in my own assessment of the game. Nate Lewis asks, what's one question you want answered by Travis Green, but you never asked? Uh, to be honest, uh, we get... Uh, I, I don't really think there is one, to be honest, because over the course of the, uh, of the season and the playoffs, we get almost daily... Um, uh, daily press conferences with him where we can ask him whatever's on our mind. And even beyond that, um, I'd, I'd always been curious about how he weighs analytics. And um, that's where I felt um, really lucky to be able to get him, uh, get him to do a one-on-one interview. And he got into very specific examples of, okay, how, how, how he uses analytics to help line matching in his own assessment of uh, individual players and, and, how it drives some of their systems changes. And so um, he was kind of able to, that was, that was the main question that I had um, was how he integrates what goes into, what goes into his decisions, right? Um, Is it just gut feel is, is he using um, numbers? Like how does he figure out what lines he wants to put together? And, and, and all these sorts of um, big picture things that coaches are responsible for that, most fans don't really uh, put much thought into. And, um, and so I asked and I was really fortunate to be able to get uh, some excellent answers on that front. So um, I'd go back and, and if you haven't read that piece already, um, that basically is the answer to every question I have for, for Travis, at least to this point. Andy Per asks you, coolest experience you had in the last two years? Coolest experience would probably be uh, sitting in Jersey retirement night. I grew up uh, idolizing that 2011 team. I uh, uh, grew up as a, as a diehard fan of the team. And um, I think uh, over the last couple of seasons, when you work um, as a reporter in a, in a professional way, um, I know a lot of other people in the business, sports media business have said this, but it, it, legitimately do, it legitimately does kind of kill your fandom. 
Um, and, um, and, and that's not to say you don't want the team to do well because I obviously serve an audience of Canucks fans and I want them to be happy. Uh, but uh, I obviously don't root for them in the same way. But that 2011 team will always have a, a special place uh, in my heart. Uh, I was um, still really young um, when they made that Stanley Cup final run. And to me especially, I, I, I watch other sports, the NBA, NFL, but um, I'm not a diehard uh, when it comes to rooting other teams. And that uh, that 2011 team, I think, is going to be – for the re- remainder of my life, the one time where I had uh, a ton emotionally invested into a team just to kind of ride the emotional roller coaster, the highs and the lows of, uh, of being a diehard fan. And, um, and so I'm always going to cherish that. And, and when Sadine Jersey retirement night happened, um, it was just a surreal experience to see that I, I idolized the twins, that entire core to see that Jersey go up in the rafters. And and before the game had started, um, that entire core was, was back in town to celebrate. And um, I remember going down in the media room and all of them were basically just there to talk to you. So I think the, the coolest, coolest experience there was my favorite player growing up was Ryan Kessler. And just to be able to walk up to him um, and kind of joke around that uh, making him feel old by saying that uh, he's my favorite, that he was my favorite player growing up. And, and now I'm already working in the media industry. Uh, that was a really cool experience to, to, to have a conversation with him, chat, uh, chat for a few minutes, uh, you know, chat with BX for a few minutes, Burroughs, Luongo, all of them were there. And um, so these were kind of my childhood heroes growing up. And, and so to me, that was a really, really cool experience, cool experience to, uh, be able to meet them and, um, and and just kind of reminisce on some of those old memories. David Quadrelli asks, whose vehicle is cleaner, his or Chris Faber's? I think it's his. Um, no offense to Chris Faber there. Uh, he, uh, um, I actually really like his truck. It's a, it's a throwback, uh, Faber's. Uh, but Quadrelli's is just so, so clean. Like it's, there's nothing out of place. He has a proper stand and, and, and everything for his phone. Um, one of those cup holders um, uh, for his phone where it kind of props up. I'm too lazy to get one of them, to be quite honest. Um, and it's just really neat. And uh, I, I don't even blame Faber. It's not even that his car, that his truck is dirty or anything. It's just that Quadrelli's is... Uh, crystal clean. Uh, I mean, even even my car. I uh, I haven't been driving it a little, driving it much at all uh, during uh, during the shutdown. But um, I, I can tell you, it's it's not as uh, clean as David's. That's that's interesting. Um, uh, what do you have to say for Canucks fans who are doubting or worrying about Vasily Podkolzin's uh, production uh, in the KHL? Yeah, I'm gonna more on this uh, in an article um, pretty soon next week, I think early, but um, I mean, just look at what he's doing at the uh, Karjala cup, right? Four points in two games. He's the captain. And uh, what you're seeing is internationally he's productive. And, um, and, and to me, that's uh, that's just another example of the KHL just isn't a development league. It's so, so tough to score in that, uh, in that environment. He's not getting primetime minutes. Um, He's and you look at it from Scott's perspective, the KHL club, they have no incentive to prioritize his development. They know he's bolting to Vancouver. 
um, they have no vested interest in developing him uh, to maximize his potential. And so, yeah, it makes sense why they're kind of burying him on the fourth line. Um, and that, and remember, that Scott team is, is really good. You're talking about one of the best teams in the, in the second most competitive league um, in all of hockey. So Pod Coles, he's only 19 years old, and, and you see a track record of players of his age it's not just him. Other other players are are, are and, and have been in a similar environment where if their minutes are kind of stifled, they don't produce now. Eventually, of course, at some point, you're going to need to see, see the production. Uh, and I think the the fact that he hasn't done so there is more uh, done so and produced in the cage show right now is more a reflection of the fact that uh, he doesn't have the explosive offensive upside that an Elias Pettersson or... or uh, even a Brock Besser does, but we knew that going in, right? Like if Pod Colson hits, it's going to be as sort of a, a 50 point two way B two way beast um, as a player who also has power forward traits. And that's a really, really unique skill set. Um, re- he'd be a really, really special player um, despite the point totals not being the highest. So I think it's the lack of KHL production is maybe reflective a reflection of that, but uh, beyond that, uh, I wouldn't be worried. At least now, we're going. To, we're just going to have to wait and see for him to come over to the come over to North America, uh, and get that opportunity to see uh, what he's really made of. Without revealing too much, what kind of articles should we expect from you in the near future? Yes, the Pod Colson one is coming up pretty soon. Uh, I think I'm going to have one kind of projecting the Canucks' long-term roster and cap situation. Uh, over the next few years, just uh, to see some uh, bigger picture team planning um, in, in how you might see the roster evolve over time. Um, uh, probably going to have a bunch of prospect coverage in the lead up to uh, the season and, and, and just doing an off-season top, uh, top 20 list. Um, and, uh, and just kind of following along those footsteps. Uh, I've, got, uh, I've got quite a few ideas. Just got to figure out now what order I want to tackle it in. Um, I think right now the emphasis is just on like, this is an inflection point in Vancouver's rebuild one way or another. This is going to be the point where they either tread water and and over the next couple of seasons, if things don't work out, um, they're going to be stuck in a a position where, yeah, they're, they're probably going to be a playoff team, but they're going to struggle maybe to take the next step um, if they don't navigate and, and make the right decisions. However, if they obviously play their cards correctly, then they're going to ascend as, uh, as legitimate Stanley Cup contenders. So I think every piece that, uh, or the majority of them that uh, we're going to pump out in, in recent time, uh, in, in the near future is going to be kind of with that in the back of, uh, back of, uh, in the back of the mind and, and kind of, um, looking at topics that affect that outcome and in which direction the Canucks ultimately end up going in. So um, that obviously means a ton of emphasis on the development of young players prospects, because that uh, is, is going to be imperative for Vancouver taking the next step. And um, also examining, of course, uh, the financial implications of, of how the Canucks can uh, continue building their roster in, uh, in the long run. And what does Boy Genius do in his spare time? Oh, that's a, that's a really good question. Is it, are we talking now or, or in normal or times? Now, normal times, anytime. 
Uh, now I'd say there's probably not uh, not a whole lot going on. Um, would uh, would hang out with the safe six, but uh, news friction's coming in, so uh, it's gonna suck. Gonna be stuck at home. Um, I think. I mean, in, in normal times, it's um, hitting the gym. Um, I like uh, I, I like working out uh, four to five times a week if possible. Um, I uh, I like playing soccer. Um, do it recreationally was uh, a lot more serious about it uh, as a kid growing up um, I, I've recently been interested in, in stocks um, <laughs> uh, and, and this is kind of a new pandemic thing just because I've had no time and uh, I, I've, I just think this is a, another cool scale and, and because I'm an absolute nerd um, I kind of enjoy um, dissecting and analyzing uh, some of these individual companies and looking at their numbers in the same way I might might uh, might break down uh, the numbers of of an individual player or a hockey team. So um, I think uh, I think that just kind of um, is something I enjoy the the nerd side of me and uh, beyond that just uh, just I, I'm actually waiting for this uh, pandemic to kind of it's going to take a while, but when it does, uh, I'm actually looking to looking forward to kind of building new hobbies because uh, first year, this, this past one was kind of hectic as far as um, I was, I was a workaholic, to be honest. It was mostly just work, hang out with friends, hang out with family um, and, uh, and hit the gym and, and not a whole lot, but now I'm looking forward to hopefully building up uh, more hobbies. And, um, and that probably means, uh, playing more sports because uh, I, I love doing that as a kid growing up. And Harmon, would you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? Uh, it depends on the situation. I definitely was uh, an introvert growing up. Um, I think in more recent times, I've, uh, I've become more an extrovert. Uh, I think it's more a reflection of just the fact that um, I realized that to be successful in the industry everything is about building relationships with players, GMs, coaches. Um, and you're not going to develop and, and network with others if you aren't, uh, if you aren't putting yourself out there. So I made a concerted effort to do that last season. And uh, uh, I'd say I'm, I'm kind of developing, developing my extrovert uh, qualities. My final question for you is one I ask all guests. Um, every guest gets to choose a, a song of their choice for their intro. Do you have anything in mind? Oh, oh man, you're uh, you're really putting me on the spot here. Um, it's I, I'd say anything from uh, from the these things happen album that uh, G Easy um, that G Easy uh, put out back in uh, 2014. I know G Easy gets uh, gets a bad uh, rep in the in the rap game. I, I know he could be. A, uh, a little bit corny at, at times, but I'm a huge fan of that album. Uh, I, I think uh, I, I think it's really dope. So, well, that's the first thing I disagree with you there, because uh, yeah, I'm not a big Jeezy fan. Uh, didn't like his last album at all. If you uh, trust me, if you listen to his old stuff, it it bumps oh, me harder. I, I don't I I don't listen to it. I don't really listen to his new stuff. Yeah, I have, but I it was just meh to me. But anyway, it's Harmon. Okay. Uh, thanks for it's coming okay, on. Not everyone has it. Yeah, it's all right. I was about to joke it. Uh, I was about, no, I was just about to joke that uh, not everyone has a good taste in uh, in music, but that probably applies to me more than anyone else. Oh yeah, that's what I say to other people. You don't have a good taste in music. <laughs> me, I used to say that a lot. But uh, Harmon, thanks for coming on. It's been fun talking to you. Um, uh, you can follow Harmon on Twitter at Harmon Dial 
two, and he's also on Instagram at Harmondial underscore. Uh, uh, thanks, Harm, for coming on, and hope we can do this again sometime in the future. Awesome. Thanks for having me. All right, time for the best and worst of Twitter, where I take a look at the best and the worst tweets of the week. And this week, Twitter was all about the U.S. presidential election. Don't worry, I won't get all political here. I'll just take a look at some of the tweets. <coughs> Here's some for best. Snoop, the legend primetime Snoop, tweets, Finally, after four years of madness, bigotry, racism, and idiocy, America, it's a wonderful day for an exorcism, and it shows ye uh, Photoshop Kamala Harris on Ryan Kessler and Joe Biden on Alex Burroughs after the uh, Burroughs slay the dragon and uh, Donald Trump on Jonathan Taze. Thought that was pretty funny. And Jim Houston's call still gives me chills. Mr. Booth tweets a fake screenshot of Biden saying. Once I'm elected president, my first act will be to reinstate the holiday goal horn in Rogers Arena. Shows all the states blue. One from the 1040 podcast, Jeff Patterson. Um, this one. A very powerful message and proof that could come out of loss. Seeing that Jason Botchford died of a accidental overdose due to fentanyl. Um, this guy, or woman, believed after Botch died, went to rehab, was in a dark place. Now this person is clean. Oh yeah, it's a guy. My two and a half year old daughter now has her father back and he has his life back. Just incredible. Um, Rex Chapman tweets, I know this isn't from him, like, you might have seen this already. The Avengers game, game Avengers assemble scene, with Joe Biden the rest of the Democratic Party against Trump. Yeah, you've seen this one. I'm sure, at least. This one's pretty funny. Southampton FC. I mentioned earlier, they are at the top of the league, on the Premier League table. They tweet a picture of the Premier League standings and tweet, Stop the count. Sovsit Decider and Alice LSE4 tweets, Liberté, Egalité, Gritté. And it shows a picture of Gritty, <laughs> photoshopped on a French Revolution painting. And, uh... Um, Richard Davis Jr. at Rice to Richard tweets, Stop the count to the student debt crisis where it's like over a billion. I agree. I agree. Here's a, here's a one for that's just bad. Shows a picture, shows a video of Trump supporters jamming out to killing in the name by raging against the machine. Do they not know what the lyrics mean? Fools. There's a reason why, uh... The genius exists. Uh, Donald Trump tweeted, stop the count. Greta Thunberg tweets, so ridiculous. Donald must work on his anger management problem, then go to a gold-fashioned movie with a friend. Chill, Donald, chill. Just, if you don't know, that's what Donald Trump tweeted about her back in, like, December of last year. Got him. Mina Kimes of ESPN tweets, it's possible for me to read Omaha and anything but a Peyton Manning voice now. And I was born there. Omaha. 
uh, uh, so it'll end um one that's bad. Uh, this girl tweets, "Ugly guys got the best dick," and then someone FSP the Don quote tweets saying, "Imagine you hop on Twitter and see your girl post a picture of you with this caption. That'd be the worst. That'd be the worst." Anyway, not much this week. Uh, I was gonna do voice notes for you to ch- a chance to speak on the podcast about if the Canucks are better or worse, but I didn't receive any. Disappointed. Maybe we'll try again next week. Um, so here are the instructions. I'll tweet out a Canucks topic. You respond with a voice note. You can record yourself with Audacity or on your phone voice notes app. Make sure the audio is clear. And two minutes maximum. Then send it to podcast at gmail.com. And then I will play a few of them after the best and worst Twitter segment. Uh, hopefully we can do it next week. Or sometime in the future. Why not do it this week, but Kind of disappointing. Well, not at the end of the world, but... It's good to be back podcasting. Uh, hope you enjoyed this week's episode. You can follow me on Twitter at JoshuaRay91. Same handle for Instagram. Uh, we are at Abbott Discussers on Twitter. And Instagram as well. Find us on Facebook, uh, search up Avid Discussers Podcast, leave a leave a rating, um, let me know what you thought of this episode, and about my content, what can I improve on, um, your feedback is always welcome, constructive criticism is always welcome, and uh, hope, thanks for supporting, you're all, the, you're all the best, if you're a first time listener, or if you've been listening since episode one, thank you, thank you, thank you, and uh, we'll... I'll catch you around next week. Peace out.